Welcome to the Doing Good Business Podcast, designed to bring out the best in you and your organization. I'm Laura Heacock, a leadership coach on a mission to create a culture where business is the true balance of head and heart. I work with leaders and companies on how to leverage my brand of kindness to gain powerful results. And I'm Kelly Stewart of The Positive Business, helping you shift conversations to identify what works and find ways to build on that success with people, planet, and profit in mind. The Doing Good Business Podcast is the place to learn about transformational leadership qualities and purpose-driven business practices that are essential to success in today's modern market. You can make the world a better place through business, and the business case for that starts now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Doing Good Business. We are super excited to continue the lineup of amazing guests that we have in Season 3. And today is no exception. Kelly and I are super excited to welcome an amazing gentleman whose name is Paul Burkett, and he is the founder and CEO of an organization called Automation Finance. So you're going to find out all about what they do and why we thought that Paul is doing good business. But Paul, thank you so much and welcome to the podcast and tell our listeners a little bit about who you are in the world. Well, great to great to, to be here. Um, so we're a mission-driven um, investment firm. Um, and that's pretty unusual in the real estate uh, business. So what we do is we buy pools of mortgages where the borrower is having difficulty making payments. And we work with them to restructure their mortgage so they get to keep their home Mm -hmm. and our investors get a good return. And uh, we keep the house out of foreclosure, which um, is something that we're seeing a lot of in the newspapers right now with the with the whole pandemic, I think there's going to be a lot of loans moving from just forbearance where the borrower isn't paying into foreclosure where the legal process starts and the borrower can lose their home. So we're in the business of preventing that process. Well, I know if I know my uh, my friend and co-host Kelly Stewart, I know that her ears perked up as soon as you use the phrase mission driven. Am I right, Kel? <laughs> I actually wrote it down because I thought I think we could probably stop the podcast there, right? You know, it's just so... Um, so amazingly wonderful. And that's that doesn't even begin to describe it. You see, I'm speechless. So I, of <laughs> course, am going to want to learn much more of that, as I'm sure our listeners will want to as well. Because I think, Paul, sometimes what we find is people feel that maybe sometimes doing good business is limited to certain industries. And that's why we are so excited to have you here today so we can learn more, more about this. Yeah, you know, I think Paul, to your point, you yeah. said it best. It's really rare in your industry to to have that kind of mission. And and my curiosity is definitely, you know, how did you decide to do that? How did you decide to take a, you know, somewhat traditional industry with finance and and apply this mission to it and save over a thousand families from foreclosure? Which thank you for that. That's fantastic. Well, the good news is we're over two thousand families uh, right <gasps> now. We're, we're doing we're doing. Yeah, we're doing between 30 and 40 deals per month, so roughly a deal a day. So every day, another family that was facing foreclosure is now no longer facing foreclosure. Um, And you're right, it is a dreary business. I mean, it's basically the mortgage industry. Could you think of anything more of a snooze fest than talking about (laughs) mortgages? Um, But but the way I got into it was was interesting in that I had a corporate job for 20 years. I worked at one of the big beverage companies and before that, one of the big packaged uh, goods companies. And I came to the U.S. in 2010. So I've grown up in Ireland and I lived more or less all around the world for my 
25-year corporate career. And I came to the U.S. just at the end of the last recession in 2010. And at that time, anyone who's familiar with the real estate market will remember that houses were were being fire sold at that time. You could buy Mm -hmm. a three-bedroom, two-bathroom house with a garage for seventy, eighty, ninety thousand dollars. And today that house would be maybe three hundred thousand dollars. So um I I came and I said, wow, these houses seem crazy cheap because in Europe homes are just so much more expensive. They're more expensive to buy, but they're also much more expensive to build and to maintain and, and so on. So can't really compare. But I started buying them and renting them out. And I thought, you know, this will be a great passive income for me. I'll just have it you know, maybe the odd Saturday, I'll need to do a few minutes work. But basically, the property managers will be sending me um, checks every month from rent from the tenants. And again, anyone who knows anything about rental property, you soon find out that <laughs> it was it becomes a full-time job very quickly. And I got mm. to about 30 houses, and I was spending every evening and every weekend going through quotes from people to repair toilets and, you know, damage to homes and all that stuff. And I thought, wow, my passive job is actually just another full-time job. Mm. Um, and so uh, the, the an opportunity came to buy um, a mortgage from one of the banks. And I thought, no, you can't buy a mortgage from a bank. That's crazy. Only banks can own mortgages. So I did some research. And only in America, like everything that we've done could only have happened uh, in America. But in particular, the idea that someone who isn't a banker, who doesn't own a bank, who has no banking particular expertise, so long as they abide by the rules and get the appropriate licenses, can buy a mortgage and can interact directly with a homeowner through a mortgage servicer and negotiate a deal with them. And so we did one, and then we did 10, and then we did 100, and then we ended up doing, we've done two and a half thousand now in total Mm. over the last six years. It's amazing. Well, so you actually, Paul, thank you. You're you're addressing one of the first questions I have is in what what makes automation finance what they do different from traditional mortgage. And that's something I just wasn't aware of. And then at what point then did you start to um, really focus on the people who were behind getting behind on their their mortgages? Was that right from day one or was that something that you evolved into? Yeah, it was right from day one. I'd been watching TV and seeing these shows. You may have seen them like Flip That House, where mm-hmm. they buy a house and they paint the door and all fix it up and sell it. Yes. And typically, those homes have, have been foreclosed upon. So mm-hmm. Mr. and Mrs. Smith were living in that house. And either Mr. Smith or Mrs. Smith, they got sick or there was a divorce or someone lost their job or something happened and they got behind on their mortgage. And so after a year, they've missed 10 mortgage payments of let's say a thousand bucks each. So they're now $10,000 behind. And they get a letter one day in the mail that says, um, you're 10 grand behind, give us the 10 grand or we're foreclosing and taking your house. Right. And they never have the 10 grand. So although they may now found a new job or they're now, they've, they've, they've recovered from the sickness or whatever the life event was, they're so far in the hole they can't get back out. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we come in. We'll buy that mortgage and we'll say, okay, we'll either take the missed payments and forgive them completely, or we'll add them on to the end of the loan. Mm-hmm. Or so instead of being a 30 year loan, it's a 31 year loan, or right. we'll come up with some creative way that Mr. And, Mr. and Mrs. Smith can stay in the house and continue paying. And 
the, the reason why that's good business is I think it's obvious it's good business because it keeps people in their homes mm-hmm. and really who wins when you it, it's 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 dramatic and great TV but really there's a homeless family behind left yeah. as a result of that process mm-hmm. um, so wouldn't it be better to just fix the problem keep them in their home extend the mortgage and you know, maybe the, those entrepreneurs can build a new home somewhere else. I think society does better there. Mm. And so in the, in the early days, I'd put my own money in because it was only 10 loans or 20 loans. And then we started raising money from Wall Street. And what we found then was you, you'd raise money from Wall Street and you'd buy maybe $20 million worth of loans. And you'd fix them and get them reperforming again. And then after two or three years, you'd sell them. And the people making the big bucks was actually the people who provided us the financing. So mm. most of the money went to them. We did fine, but most of the money went to them. So then I came up with another idea. Why don't we go to ordinary investors and, and pool their money? And rather than give the return to Wall Street, let's give the return from helping families to other families. So we launched a crowdfund, a Reg A crowdfund. So we're regulated by the SEC. And we go out and solicit money from investors. So we've a, we manage a pool of about $200 million in total. And we've now launched a fund that just anyone with $250 to invest can participate. We pay them a target return of 8% a year. Rather than paying it to Wall Street, we pay it to regular investors. Right. And so completes the circle, if you like. And so that's what we've been doing just for the last couple of years. Mm. Wow. This is amazing. And Paul, I have to tell you, you know, Laura and I have talked to a lot of people who do good business as you're doing. And I think some of the common themes that we see are people like you are curious, and that's what you've already demonstrated. What else could we do, right? You know, instead of going to Wall Street, creative Mm -hmm. in what you're doing and compassionate. And um, I think... I just wanted to recognize that in you because I hear that in, in the story and in the way, wow, what a wonderful way to be able to invest in general what you were doing. But then to add on this component that even with $250, someone could invest, it's inspiring. It's really inspiring. And Laura, I'll turn that to you because I know you're going to want to dive yeah, into that. I just- and yeah. so I'm trying to close my mouth because I love Paul. I love that story so much. And and we will definitely want to include a link, you know, for everybody that's listening is like, oh, I want to get in on that. Like mm-hmm. I want to be a part of good business. Let me divest a little from the stock market and invest into something that actually is mis- mission driven and helping families and, you know, doing good for the world and and for business. But I'll I'll close my mouth and put my leadership coach hat back on. And, you know, Paul, I get curious about companies that are, you know, your mission is so clear. Your vision is so clear to Kelly's point. Your creativity is really a driving factor. How do you find folks for the organization? You know, as the leader and CEO, how do you know when somebody is the right fit? You know, how do you find folks that share your mission? Um, Do you have, you know, any filter or any feedback for, other leaders who are listening to to help them find folks that are aligned in that way? Well, I think that the key thing is to know precisely what you're looking for. Mm. And so if you're if you have a vague brief, you know, I'm looking for someone who's really good, who shares my values, who, you know, and that's kind of into the, the realm of, you know, motherhood and you know, apple pie and all that stuff. It, it's not, <laughs> it, it, it's very hard to disagree with any of that. 
So you need to whittle it down to what exactly do you want? Like, I precisely want this thing. And, you know, you'll often hear, certainly my experience was, you'll find people who are great at math and people who are great at English. And rarely do you get someone who's great at math and English. So some people are very task focused. Some people are very relationship focused. Am I hiring for a task focused job or am I hiring for more of a relationship focused job? Mm -hmm. So I was just before I spoke with you, I was speaking to one of our analysts who spent the whole weekend doing an enormous project, extremely complex and delivered an outstanding product, which will really help us help more people and move the business forward. And I recognized her in front of the team on what a great job she had done and how well she had worked with other people and how the output was just spectacular. And she went, oh, yeah, that's fine. So what I want to do next is, Mm. so some people just don't care about that stuff. Some people care a lot about that. And I think the key thing is being really focused on what exactly is it that I want? So in the case of this particular analyst, she is very task oriented. She was a big check off on everything. She wants to check things off the list. She doesn't Mm -hmm. care about anything else. (laughs) Other people are more about the process. So I think it's being crystal clear on what it is you're trying to buy before you go to the store of talent to buy that thing. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I think so often we hear about that level of specificity when it comes to feedback, you know, to your point, the example of recognizing her in front of the team, specifically calling out, you know, what she did well and and her excellence. But often we don't translate Mm -hmm. that into the people decision process, right? We do exactly what you said. It's like, oh, okay, you know, apple pie and, you know, everybody wants to make the world a better Mm -hmm. place. Okay, great. But we're not we're not specific enough. And then we find that, you know, turnover gets higher and organizational fit is not there, you know, or, you know, the people just aren't able to add as much to the value of the organization as maybe everybody thought in the beginning. So I love that specificity is key. And I think that, you know, the old adage of recruitment through retirement, I think that that's really important in in every part of being a leader from hiring people to retaining people and praising them in the way that you said to helping them figure out what their career path looks like. That specificity really comes in at every piece of the process. Like what you're hearing on the Doing Good Business podcast? Then you'll love working with Laura or Kelly. Visit doinggoodbusiness.com forward slash the host to learn about them and how their services can help you do good business. And staying with that idea of messaging, this is Kelly. Um, I'm thinking because it is messaging, right? It's being specific, knowing what what you're looking for so you know the right questions to ask. I can't help but wonder, how has this been received in the industry, Paul? Because I have to imagine there have been some like, you know, sideways puppy dog head looks like, what what are you doing? Because it it has to be wildly different from what we see. And what kind of organizational, so it's kind of a two-part question, what kind of organizational strengths do you call on or what does your organization just do so well that you're so proud of that helps you respond to them in a way that helps them to see more clearly, no, this is the path, even though it sounds like something that couldn't be done? Um, it's a great question because it really summarizes, you know, any business needs to be differentiated. If you're the same as everyone else, then you're just competing on price. Oh, right. And that's a tough battle to win unless you're the largest person. I always say the that there's no, nothing to uh, drain your soul more quickly than competing on price. Absolutely. Um, and um, so, so we always wanted to be different than that. And so 
I'm re- within this bizarre industry, which is kind of a not, not a very often talked about industry. I'm relatively well known, and I guess I'm well known because we're the only ones doing what what we do. Everyone else does exactly the same thing and competes on price. Um, and I don't believe there's anyone else doing the mission-driven approach that we employ. And so, you know, first they laugh at you, then they fear you, then they respect you, whatever that continuum. Uh, right. Yeah. And, and then they imitate you. And kind of roll their eyes <laughs> and then they imitate you. And no one's imitated us yet. But but mostly people just roll their eyes and go, oh, you know, these guys mm-hmm. with helping people, you know, get the house, fix the house and sell the house and just get with the program. But mm. what we found is over time, our results have actually been better. So yeah. mission driven is all very well. If, if you're an NGO or if, if you have no profit motive, that's fine. But we're, we're not, a, we're not a, a charitable organization. We are right. a commercial capitalist organization. The unique part for us is we have found a way to pursue hard-nosed commercial business while also helping people. And there's mm-hmm. not too many people who do that. Usually you have to you have to give up on the return, at least to some extent, because you get the fuzzy feeling of helping people. Well, we're trying to break that trade off and say, look, we can do it all. And we've demonstrated for six years now that you can do it all. And that gives you two benefits. Firstly, people who care about helping other people are interested. And most mm-hmm. of our investors invest. They like the return, but they also like to help people. But also, when we go to a bank that's selling a pool of loans, we say to them, well, here's our track record. Here are 2,000 and something, I don't know, 2,000, almost 100 people who we've saved from foreclosure. Um, Wouldn't you rather sell the loans to us than to someone else who's just going to foreclose and kick those people out, given that we're going to pay you the same price for the loan as someone who's going to evict the people and kick them out? Like, it's better for you. It's better for your headline risk. Because no mm-hmm. bank wants to be told, hey, you made 2,000 people homeless. Mm-hmm. Well, if you sell them to us, you won't make them homeless. Right. So I think out of 2,100 loans, we've only taken 60 houses back. Mm. So almost all of them get resolved. Now, some people say, hey, go jump in the lake. We're not going to work with you. Of course, right. people are going to say that. And those houses do go through foreclosure. I mean, we don't just say, oh, well, oh, we, thanks for playing and we'll, we'll try again next year. We're, we're a commercial organization. But our objective is to is to get to a consensual outcome and not to just take a house, fix it and sell it. To me, it feels like such a, you know, I think we see, Paul, so many things that are, you know, Band-Aid solutions, right? Like, okay, you can, you know, any right. any mortgage company can buy a mortgage and, and foreclose and, you know, try and recoup their finances, however. But this really feels like much more root-driven, um, you know, like getting to the root of it. We can actually solve the problem of foreclosure by structuring the mortgages differently and by having this mission as part of the organization. And, you know, I, as somebody who is deeply passionate about getting to the root of things <laughs> with people on a daily basis, I right. love that your business is, is actually doing that, you know, we can band aid and, and I think in the US right now, particularly, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of equity and inclusion band aids, right? Like you, cannot yep. find a company that's not hiring a DEI officer or a consultant or, or something yep. like that. So, but, and I'm curious for you, you know, how have you responded to everything going on in the U S in the equity and inclusion space, you know, with the black lives matter, um, 
you know, the, the racial reckoning really like what, what has been different or has anything needed to be different because that root cause has always been a piece of your company? I think there's two parts in the answer to that question. One, I've worked for big corporations where you're trying to shoehorn in a social agenda into a business that, you know, doesn't lend itself particularly to having a social agenda. Our business has the distinct advantage of serving almost entirely disadvantaged communities. Mm -hmm. So 90%, maybe 80% of our borrowers are in the lower quarter of earners in the United States. Um, And so by definition, you're helping people who are, who haven't had the education advantages or haven't had the um, uh, socioeconomic advantages that may accrue to the average person. So for us, it's been pretty easy in that it's we, we were doing it before any of before any of the more socially aware um, themes emerged in society. We were already doing all of this stuff because the people who are disadvantaged, well, they're our clients. So mm-hmm. we kind of started with them. And I think, you know, I just want to amplify that a little bit because I think there has now, you know, been so much talk about what is performative, what is just, you know, you're putting out a nice commercial, but you're not actually looking at your your business, right? Like it's not who you are as an organization in in other cases. Um, whereas for you, it's just, it's always been a part of the business model. So I I just want to give a little more space to that because we think that that is one of the huge tenets of of doing good business. So thank you for that wouldn't want to get too woo-woo about it. We're a hard-nosed commercial mm-hmm. organization mm-hmm. that generates yep. 8% return for our investors mm-hmm. and saves homes and saves families from foreclosure. Mm-hmm. And I think if you can get the the, two, the three sides of the triangle to kind of stand up on its own, then you have a real sustainable business. Yeah, that's the model, right? And, you know, there's there are multipliers to this too. We're talking about these 2,000 families, but we're talking about the number of people in those households who will always be positively impacted by this. So you're also impacting a future generation who sees the benefit you know, or, or experiences the benefit of being able to stay in their home, probably at some point becoming a little bit more financially astute about what was going on if they, you know, in understanding that the one path was going to lead them to foreclosure, but understanding that through this different type of investment, they're able to stay in their homes. So there's a real multiplier to that. And I know when you talk about the the returns in, you know, we, we talk about it here on the show as doing good business, but we've mentioned before in the finance world, you know, people more are more aware of it as ESG performance, right? That environmental, social governance performance. And there's been, a, you know, longitudinal research done that says over the last 20 years, the companies that do well by doing good do financially well. And that includes that time where um, during the recession, when you came to the country, where a lot of companies weren't performing well. So to me, this is, mm. it's not like, it, you know, <laughs> it's like, why don't more people just do this, right? <laughs> so I think that that's what, you know, you're proving that in, in everything that you do every year. And um, as you think about the future for automation finance, right, and for the, for the company, what is it that you care most deeply about that you, you know, kind of like that, kind of similar to the, if you could only take one thing to a desert island, right? If you 
yeah. you know, could hold on to all the good things you're doing, but you could only hold on to one into the future because we don't know what changes are coming. Um, what's the one thing you want to take with you as an organization? Well, I think it, it's hard to separate the organization from the mission. And the mm-hmm. mission is r- raise money from ordinary people to help other ordinary people. It's very easy to right. understand. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to execute. So we would just do that. Um, and that, if your mission is the right mission, then it attracts investors. It attracts support from local government regulators, because we're obviously mm-hmm. a highly regulated industry. Mm-hmm. If you can demonstrate that you're doing the right thing, then it makes it easier for people to support you. And everyone needs a bit of support. And that's really right. all that we're doing. Right. Well, I think that is um, the raising money from ordinary people to help other ordinary people feels like a really beautiful way to uh, to wind down this time together, Paul. And I just want to see if there's Anything else that you would like to, you know, anything that you are looking forward to? And I know you're you're spending some time with family during COVID now in Ireland, but anything that you are looking forward to in the future with automated finance, anything that you'd like to share um, with our audience as, as a way of our, our final words? Well, there's going to be another wave of foreclosures, unfortunately, at the end of this year and into the start of next year. Um, we've, all, we've all heard about the um, people working in hospitality and leisure. Mm. And a lot of those people are entrepreneurs and a lot of those people have mortgages and their restaurants are closed, their bars are closed, their hospitality venues are closed and they're going to face foreclosure. So um, we're we're going to need to raise a lot more capital and there's going to be a lot more loans to buy um, at the end of this year and beginning of next year. So I'm just asking for people to um, go to the SCC website, read our placement, make sure that they understand everything. If there were any questions, please give me a call or send me an email or you can get me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. And um, we'd like help from anybody who's interested in doing it. And our target return of 8% is pretty good compared to putting it in the bank. So um, we'd like to ask people to consider uh, participating and 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 getting a small payment every month uh, and 8% for the year. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we will include all of those links in the show notes to make it easier for people um, to jump in and to participate and to be a part of the crowd of ordinary people who are helping other ordinary people. Thank you so much for all of that. And thank you for the work that you're doing in the world and, and for taking, yeah, for taking a very traditional, um, realm of, of work and, and making it really mission driven. You know, Kelly and I always want to talk to guests who are proof of concept, right? Like we believe that business, you know, capitalist profit, you know, for-profit business can be used as a force for good in the world. And you certainly have given us proof of that concept today. So thank you again so very much. I would even add another C to what I was saying, curious, creative, compassionate, and, and given the industry that you're in and what you took on, also courageous. So we mm-hmm. thank you for taking that step where others would have just kind of walked away from it. And um, and we need oh, wow. more business leaders like you. I thought you were going to say crazy. So that's <laughs> Not for our podcast. You are absolutely the C's that Kelly mentioned. <laughs> Not crazy at all. Well, Paul, thank you again. And we wish you nothing Great. but success. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks, Laura. It was great being on the show. So good luck for the future. 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Doing Good Business. We hope you'll tune in regularly, leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts, follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter, and most importantly, tell a friend or a few. It's how we can build the critical mass to make the world a better place through business. The Doing Good Business podcast is brought to you by Laura Heacock of Laura Heacock Consulting and Kelly Stewart of The Positive Business. Learn how you can work with us at doinggoodbusiness.com slash the hosts. Let us know what you like about the podcast and what else you'd like to hear about through our online form on the contact page of doinggoodbusiness.com. We'll see you next time.